The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Now my hockey mic here default in Mahinei. This is the fold. This is a real special one, I reckon. It's with Kirsty Johnston, who is a senior writer at Stuff, um, and I will background her on what she says shortly. But this is also the start of a little run I'm going to do of speaking to people who make things. I just realised recently that I basically spent the first half of this year talking to CEOs and the broadcasting minister and people who I find really fascinating but are also, you know, in some ways quite remote from the the production line of, of the media. And I'm going to fix that by interviewing a bunch of people who are much closer to, if not actually with, with their hands on the tools. And uh, Kirsty Johnston is a really good place to start that, I think. I've known Kirsty for... 10 years or so, and, and I talk about uh, the, the night that we, we met at Kim.com's house at, at the top of this, but her, her career has been probably one of, if not the most impressive of any uh, young journalist over the past decade. She has broken enormous stories and, and very consequential stories about, often about the kinds of people who really struggle to to make the news in a lot of ways who don't have you know don't have a tremendous amount of uh, people out there scrutinizing their lives and as a result benefit disproportionately when their stories often very heartrending stories are told she she broke the story or not necessarily broke the story as she, as she acknowledges but certainly amplified the story of of Ashley Peacock's uh, seclusion in a way that just got got him out of that environment she spent a year at Papakura High School um, just just showing the lives of of kids there she's told Amazing stories about housing and and education, and is currently obsessed with the family court. And you know, most recently, she had a, a huge hit, if that's the right word for it, with the the story of Mrs. P, um, which I strongly encourage you to look up. So we we talk about her career, but we also talk about you know the difference between the Herald and stuff as as newsrooms, and she is you know, potentially career-limitingly candid about her. Ex- I shouldn't say career-limitingly because she can, she's one of those journalists who can, you know, basically do whatever she wants. It's that 
fierce devotion to her craft that it, that makes her so special. You just get a real strong sense of who she is as a person and of what motivates her as a journalist. And I, I think it's a very entertaining lesson and I think it just shows what a just a really impressive and specific character she is. So this is uh, Kirsty Johnston on The Fold. <laughs> I should say that The Fold is proudly supported by Vodafone. The spin-off runs on Vodafone Network Technology. We do a lot of quite chunky work. We record podcasts, as you may or may not know. Uh, we deal with like 4K video files. We switch to remote working during the pandemic. It, it's a lot and you really need it to work and it does. Find out more at vodafone.co.nz. This is Kirsty Johnson, the first of my creator series on The Fold. Kia ora, Kirsty Johnston. Kia ora, I'm here in Auckland. It's so exciting. Which is buzzy because I think of you as an Auckland, even though you famously, to my mind, wrote a piece saying how Auckland was bad. Yeah, and then I had to take it back. Remember, like nine months later, I was like, just crept back in <laughs> quietly so no one could throw that in my face. I feel like we should have revoked your sort of regional passport or something. Yeah, but I'm in Tauranga now, which is like mini Auckland, but worse. Is that its sort of new official slogan? That's my slogan for it. I love that. All right. I want to actually get back to when we first met. Oh. Do you remember? No. It was at Kim.com's house. Yes, and I was really hungover. Were you? I think so. I feel like we were just on our way to a good hangover. It was a, during that weird time, a very little like sliver of the moment where there were heaps of journalists at Kim.com's house semi-often. Yeah. We gave you a ride home. You did. I remember this now. Yeah. And I was mainly like hyperventilating the entire time because he has swans. Remember he had those swans? And I'm like terrified of birds. So the whole time I was trying to have conversations with people, but I was like one eye on the swans. Swans will fuck you up. Yes. Um, and the thing that I remember um, most vividly about that car ride home was like, because I was already a big fan of your journalism and you were like, I'm just a like a classic old bleeding heart or something. And I was like, huh. Because it felt to me at the time like that was almost like a, a negative pejorative thing to, to that you might throw at someone. Um, but it's almost like when you look at how society has moved since then and certainly the body of work that you've created subsequently, it kind of accurately sums up. You just go after telling the stories of people who – have really had it super rough and and you seem to like carry and inhabit that. Is that fair? That's a real long question. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember I learned that word bleeding heart from a reporter at the Taranaki Daily News, uh, Lynn. She was like, she always referred to herself as like Auntie Lynn in the newsroom and she was amazing and she'd always go on about how she was a bleeding heart liberal and I didn't really, I was like 21, I was like, what's a liberal? Don't know. <laughs> Um, and But I remember the bleeding heart bit, and I think I just used that word without actually maybe knowing what it was, and then I just kind of enjoyed applying it, ironically. Um, but, yeah, I think I think for me, like, so the reason I tell people's deep stories is not only because of them and I care what happened to them, it's because I'm always trying to, like, illustrate structural change, and so you can't really, well, like, structural issues to get structural change, and you can't do that without humans, and so that's kind of why I go down that path. Like, usually those people have those stories in and of themselves, and sometimes you'll get a story that 
doesn't really have any necessary structural stuff. But mainly that's why I do it. Because you, I remember in, there was a, an interview that you did, a, a revolutionary, as he was fond of calling them, email interview with uh, Steve Ronias a few years ago, where you um, talked about that, you know, donatism basically saying start writing about people if you're so animated by these issues. And that does seem to be almost like a, a mode shift that you went through that has been the making of you. Yeah, that really, poor Donna. Like, she's always like, it was just a throwaway comment. And I'm like, no, that was the best. That was the best thing that happened. That's why I made the Papakura um, High School documentary, because I was writing about all these education issues, which I think is still there. Haven't checked, but can't really assume much has changed. With inequality, and it's really hard to tell, like, that Auckland inequality story. Um, and so I wanted to do it through humans and then I think it was you Duncan it was you actually who said why don't you do uh, um, what's the football Friday Night Lights you were like do it like Friday Night Lights and then I literally the next day emailed a principal like want to do a thing and he said yes so I actually wanted to talk about that later, but let's talk about it now because it's come up because I really, really loved it. Um, I totally disavow any responsibility for it, but it was the, the, the sense of following a group over the course of a year and, and of you getting comfortable with them and them with you and just sort of easing into the, the sort of realities of their life. That's what made that documentary have that power because it just it's just there. It's not engineered in any way yeah we just literally hung around and asked the kids questions and like they'd be real awkward and we'd be awkward because it was just awkward hanging around with them all the time with a camera but it it got less like that and they got really used to us and it was it was so nice like it was such a great year like obviously I nearly died from the stress of it but I remember going to the ball with them and, like, it was so fun. And, like, honestly, one of them was late and he didn't nearly make it on the bus. And I was like, are we allowed to intervene at this point and go and get him? Because I need these shots for my documentary. But we couldn't. We did just sit there and be like, come on, Robbie. Like, come on. Where are you? Robbie made it? <laughs> yeah, he made it. But, yeah, it was it was so good. And I think, I don't really know if it achieved what we wanted in terms of, like, breaking open the, you know, conversation. But it achieved something in that you really got to see what those kids' lives were like. Yeah, some of that comes down to, like, you know, I personally feel like that style of documentary making, which, you know, you look at something like Last Chance You or Cheer, is those things are massive internationally. It would almost take someone, you know, it, it was on the, the Herald platform. They gave it a really good push, but in some ways it would have made more sense for it to be like a, a TV half hour or... Um, yeah, that that screened over a few weeks, for example. Like, yeah, I think we initially talked to Maori TV about showing it, but I can't remember what happened with that. And in saying that, it was such like a small budget production as well. That was the first time that a newspaper had got money from New Zealand on air for something like that. And I think we only got we didn't get much. It was like, like seventy like, grand or something. Yeah, seventy like, grand. And then we all just worked a lot. It's just the way. Just <laughs> the way. Just the way. Um, and that kind of gets to. Like in some ways, another quote from that um, that interview was that uh, you described yourself as, as doomed to be a journalist, which is just a real funny way to put it. But it also feels accurate. Like I think of, like I know quite a number of people who are, you know, sort of 
super talented, came through journalism and hit kind of a war where you there, there is a some sort of financial, emotional thing that happens to you. Um, and often at a particular age, it coincides with, with some other kind of life changes. And to, to step out of that, to kind of have your job be a job and not be a thing that just sort of rolls over your entire life, you need to go and work in comms. But that just doesn't seem like it's a possibility for you. Yeah, I don't think it is. I recently had a concussion at the end of last year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, <clears throat> in a very unglamorous way. I had my wisdom teeth out, and then the sedation like didn't agree with me, and I just passed out into the floor in the middle of the night. Um, and yeah, so that required me to do a lot of like, you know, self-reflection. But basically, I remember being at the occupational therapist and she's like, now, how are you working? And I was like, look, I'm only doing nine to five. And she's like, OK, we'll just back up um, only nine to five. She's like, that's what you're paid for. I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. And I just reflected on that, and then I tried. She got me to rewrite down like what work meant to me, and what my goals were, and what success looked like. And so I've kind of done some work to make it a bit more sustainable. But it's pretty hard. Like you're either in or out. I think with the type of journalism that I'm doing. So how did you get down that path? Because you know, there's obviously that these are human stories. They're also like you're an investigative of journalists, and that's notoriously the thing that is hard to find and that hard to create investigative journalists there's some degree of temperament but there's also like an organization has to bet on you but it feels like in some ways i don't know if this is entirely fair you kind of bet on yourself and made yourself into it by scratching and clawing what happened i won the voyager award for best investigation and i was like wow <laughs> guess I'm an investigative journalist now. I think I was at the Sunday Star Times and I wrote a big piece about how the government had quietly shut down all these um, residential homes for the disabled because they'd been abusing the people that lived there. Um, the staff had been. And so that I just did this like big OAA request and wrote a big story, big series on that, and it won. And so then I went overseas for a year, and when I came back to the Herald, I remember they hired me, and I was thinking, oh, I was going to do some kind of role like that. And there were journalists there, like David Fisher, and, you know, he was kind of off book, and I thought I'd be like that. And my second day there, they were like, okay, well, you're going to be education reporter. And I, like, went home and cried. So I was like, I don't want to write about schools, you know. Um, and then I just kind of investigated schools and really tried to just you know just break that the systemic stuff there apart about inequality and just basically nagged the herald i think and at the same time they created the i team which they've kind of now like randomly disavowed and then it, then brought back again. and then brought back and like they have this weird thing where they're like oh that wasn't actually a thing well like well um jared's like job title was you know head of the investigations team and he had 10 direct reports but Okay. But yeah, so I was definitely part of that um, kind of just after it started. So, I mean, the most recent investigation of yours that uh, I think was was that into the, just that it's just, it's a tragic, like, you know, th this will make your heart bleed, um, the, the case of Mrs. P. Do you want to talk about um, the genesis of that story and, and the, there was, a, I thought it was quite an inter in, interesting kind of stylistic 
thing that you did where you just it was so spare it was just the beats because the beats were so strong that it kind of wore you down yeah so um that was a story about the family court which I've somehow ended up writing about a lot I didn't really start out meaning to um I really wanted to write about domestic violence because it is a scourge but I don't feel like any of the reporting that's happening at the moment really captures it. I didn't feel like that. It's a really difficult thing to capture because it's not how people think it is. You know, everyone thinks it looks like once were warriors. They think it's criminal. They think, you know, drunk dudes beat their wives and they go to court, you know. Um, and it's not like that. It's not like that at all. It's coercive control. It happens like all the perpetrators I've been writing about are like architects or accountants, or lawyers, you know, they're white guys. And I remember talking to, you know, Jackie Clark, who runs the domestic violence charity, the aunties. She was like, you need to write about white men. So that's what I started doing. And there are some cases within the kind of family court purview, I guess, that have been going on for ages. And just like in criminal law, they are kind of these definitive cases. And this woman's, Mrs. Pease, was one that I kind of heard about Also because there was an article in the Gisborne Herald about her refusing to stand for a judge. And I was like, what is that? And I remember asking one of the other women who'd had the same judge. I was like, do you know about this? And she she said, yeah, yeah. And then I so I eventually found the woman, Mrs. P. Do you want to describe basically her experience of life? Because I think that, you know, if, if people haven't read it, I strongly urge you to seek it out. But if not, it's worth kind of getting into the... Yeah, so, okay, so she split from her husband, who she said was abusive, and she had quite a lot of evidence of that, Um, and they broke up, they did a property settlement, and then then they kind of did another one, like, that's all a bit murky, that stuff, but effectively, they ended up getting to court after a few years, and... She said she she only signed the first agreement, which was kind of unfair to her, was quite unfair to her, under duress because he'd been abusing her for 16 years. Um, and he said, you know, he only signed the second one because he had mental health problems or something. <clears throat> but effectively, the judge in her family court case, Judge Peter Kalinikos, didn't believe that she had been abused. Um, and some of the basis of that was this one document that she had altered. It was like an ACC counselling form. And on that form, they kind of write, you know, some spare details about her case. <clears throat> and and the counsellor had written them down wrong. And so Mrs P, who's like this very diligent, fact-oriented person, had amended them so that it was correct. And then she signed that document in with her affidavit. And they said, is it true and correct? And she said, yes. But then in the court's view, they were like, you've amended a document which is no, 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 you know, that's Mm. like in the law, that's the worst thing you can do. So the judge really took against her. It's extraordinary some of what you quote him saying and the the sense of him sounding much more like a prosecution, uh, sorry, like like a defence lawyer than like a... A judge. It's it's an incredibly hostile line he pursued. Yeah, and I think like within that story, we couldn't even get in the breadth of it. But it's kind of him and the 
you know, the, the husband's lawyer going at her and she's trying to answer these questions and she's struggling. And you can even just reading the transcript, you can see her struggling. And they're like, you lied. And she's like, I didn't lie. And they're like, he didn't abuse you. And she's like, well, he did. And this goes on. And, and in the end, after the judgment came out, he the judge ended up referring her case for a criminal prosecution. So like, from the family area to the police. The police did this really half-assed investigation, charged her. And then, you know, she because she got criminal charges, she was a teacher, she lost her job. Like, she was on home detention for a year. Like, she lost everything. You know, she was living in a garage with no hot water. Um, for really difficult reasons. Like, you can't really... It's just reading it now, you're like, what happened? It's kind of... Like, yeah, it's really difficult to to get your head around, I think. And I think readers felt that as well, which I was, I was totally taken aback by. In what sense? Like, I didn't really, I think because I'd been so deep in the story by that point and it had been so hard to get her on board and to get her comfortable because, you know, she's like, you know, it had been really awful for her. Um, yeah, so I think I was really shocked when it came out and that the reaction was so massive. I'd kind of forgotten how actually awful it was you know I mean it was a miscarriage of justice that's what sorry that's what eventually happened the court of appeal ruled that the perjury uh, charges the criminal charges were unfounded I mean and the the thing about that story is I guess that that you were able to tell and and that there were this was based on a lot of official records uh, coming out of the justice system that were kind of uh, you know, that, that were there in black and white. And there was another story of yours um, which sort of dealt with the inverse of that that actually feels like it is there in a lot of what you can and can't do, which was the um, the university lecturer who, um, you know, and again, like, I mean, you were largely writing about what, you know, the, the, what wouldn't be released to you and the extent to which... Um, in public institutions, laws that are, you know, feel like there is an incredibly wide, um, you know, just a long bow drawn to that, that end up protecting, uh, you know, people who have got long records of um, just pretty pretty terrible behaviour within a workplace context. You know, do you want to talk about privacy law and the o, the OIA and the limits of those things and how familiar you are with the ombudsman? Yeah, so, like, it's really interesting, hey? Like, Mrs P's case, because it was there in black and white in the judgments, that's what I, like you said, that's why I stuck to that in the story because it's there. If you stray outside of that, you risk, you know, legal repercussion. And then, yeah, in the story about the professor who... Her sexually harassed someone I wasn't able to get any of the information which I I mean employment law that part of employment law that covers privacy I think is just so deeply problematic and you see it coming up again and again and again and it's come up in the uh the Trevor Mallard case mm. with the uh, alleged, rapist. alleged rapist in parliament and they're like oh it's employment law we can't tell you and I honestly don't understand why it covers you know, it covers that kind of thing. I mean, I think if you have harassed somebody in a workplace and particularly if the harassment has been upheld, I think, and you're not being named, or even if you are, I think it's fair to release that because in the professor's case, it's like he goes on to what, you know, universities are deeply hierarchical places. He's going to have junior staff under him. He's going to have access to young women like students. 
I don't think it's ethical, you know, to have that kept secret. And I and I don't understand. And I had a large argument with the ombudsman about it. And they just, yeah, they just can't do anything because that's what privacy law says with regards to employment law. Yeah, and it's got to think that either as a student or, or someone who's considering a workplace, the more information you have the more you're, you're able to protect yourself as much as anything. Yeah, and I said that to the ombudsman. I said, I think it's in the public interest. and But yeah, it doesn't, like it doesn't outweigh those privacy interests. And I, I, yeah, I can't make sense of it and I think it needs to be revisited, but I don't really know who's pushing for that or like where or what law needs to be changed. Um, and I don't know why more people aren't making noise about it. I mean, it, it's so broad. Like, look at what's happening right now with, I don't know if you want to talk about it, with the Devlin case at NZME. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a, a super interesting case where the, the first spark of it was um I don't think it's allegedly, he, he admitted uh, swinging a punch at a colleague, which he says he had never any intention of uh, connecting, but that's beside the point. Really an extraordinary, uh, in my view, non-apology issued there. And then he goes on to make references to sort of a, a couple of innocent emails that were misinterpreted, and you you just go, <laughs> this feels like it's got a lot more run. And, and sure enough, today, I think that they announced that he's been stood down again. I thought it was clearly a, an incredibly brief investigation. You tweeted in the aftermath of that about having seen some things there and, and having kind of considered, you know, or re reconsidered them in the aftermath. It's quite interesting, right? Because you're a journalist and you are, you're, but you're also an employee and you're, scrutinizing other people's workplaces while also being in one and this is a case where you know your eyes might not have been attuned to something you know do you want to talk about the Devlin case and and how it sort of sits in terms of the the framework with which you view these things yeah it's so interesting like the hip hypocrisy of media we talk about it all the time like the other reporters you know we're busy writing about everyone else being scumbags or harassing people and it's like ah oh, we should probably have a look at our own Backyard, and I think the Martin Devlin one is the first time. Hi there, just uh, Duncan here, popping in and post to say that we've had to cut this due to the small but real risk uh, that it was a bit too intense <laughs> to, to run. Uh, so, unfortunately, you'll you'll have to just guess at what was said. Now, back to the fold. Is there a tension, do you think, between the, that sort of star system that seems to inhabit radio where they are kind of coddled to some extent, or certainly that's the reputation, I've not worked in radio myself, where, whereas the, a newsroom has a, it obviously has its stars in some respects, but it's not quite the same kind of, we have to keep this person so we can maintain our share of, of, over our crosstown rival. The audience thing with radio is different, right? Certainly that, that is the thesis, but then every so often one just falls and things seem to work themselves out. You don't have to keep employing Tony Veach, it turns out, because you can find another. Yeah, and didn't, was it like Larry... Thingy left and Kerry McIver took over and it was all fine and everyone was like panicking about you know this guy leaving and she took over and still good like the numbers are still there. Yeah, I think people underestimate the, the there there is a sort of a 
cult around various broadcasters, which on in, in some rare occasions is justified, but mostly it's just people aren't good at changing their TV channel. They're not good at um, moving their, their radio <laughs> dial. Sorry. Sorry, radio people. <laughs> no, but yeah, there is definitely something around the, those hosts are like kind of, you know, they are deified. They are godlike. And I mean, look, not... I don't know how many bridges I want to burn here, but when I was at the Herald, I remember I once tweeted something about Mike Hosking and it was very kind of, it was like funny and light and not a big deal. It was just something you'd said or done. Um, And I got told off, like I got a formal telling off, like don't tweet that, delete it, like you you can't just tweet about him. Like my manager took me into the kitchen and sat me down and was like, you need to stop doing that, it's upsetting the management. That didn't just happen to me, it happened to other reporters in the building. And yet at the same time, what used to like really upset us was that Hosking would take our stories on the radio and just rip them to shreds. That's just like a big part of his shtick is the critiquing the media while also being the most highly paid person in the media. Yeah, so he's like there, like like destroying one of my stories on air, like doubting its credibility, like just being like, who does this reporter think she is? And so he's allowed to do that. And we'd be like, why is he allowed to do that? And we're not allowed to be like, lol, have you seen his $3,000 loafers today? <laughs> his Gucci loafers. <laughs> you know, I it was, it was weird. And I think like... It's all very funny and, like, that was annoying to me. Maybe it's not meaningful, but I think within that context of workplace power structures, it is a problem. Well, that clearly is part of the enabling structure that that allowed Devlin to behave the way he did and um, without consequences. Yeah, for a long time. I mean, I don't know who's going to keep writing about it. I mean, they've got the irony that their own reporter, Katie Harris, is doing the reporting on it, has not escaped me. Um, So, I don't know if she would have got that story across the line if stuff hadn't broken their story. I mean, we, we had multiple inquiries in and I was in communications with their head of comms getting no replies, which is very weird. You know, the, you, normally you get at least a holding pattern. And, and you know, that was that was the worst kept secret in media at the time, that something was going, going on there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it is it does go to what, you know, your earlier point about media struggles to report on itself, um, particularly... You know, we can talk about the business of media. Hi, this is a fault. Oh, here uh, we go. <laughs> but but the actual, you know, where we stray into things that would be reportable were they to happen at any other kind of big corporate, they suddenly really struggle to know how to deal with it, especially kind of where you're, you know, you've got a big organisation that wraps up, you know, radio with its kind of power structures and dynamics and, uh, and a print newsroom. Yeah, I, it's so difficult, like... When you're a reporter in that environment, like, so it's a corporate environment just like any other, you see things happening, you know that they're bad because you write about them, you want to do something, but equally you're just an employee, you'd probably like to go to HR, but everyone knows that HR isn't really there for the employees, it's just to limit liability to the company as far as I can tell. And then also you've got that power dynamic of particularly young women not wanting to be tarred with the, oh, she's difficult brush, and that's why I know some of those girls didn't complain. Because it's something that will follow you for your whole career and that is still strong throughout every organisation, I would say, but particularly at really like legacy, hierarchical legacy organisations like NZME. So, I mean, in some ways, like the, the Devlin thing, it's a fascinating in and of itself. If, but if you look at the, like the, where the largest part of your career has been spent reporting, it is on the public sector side like it's it's largely about the state and its failings 
do you have a you know you've now been a reporter in, in these in this areas for at least a, a, a decade like a, a solid decade do you have a sense that the needle is moving because I mean these are obviously decades centuries old problems failures that the Royal Commission of Inquiry into abuse and state care would suggest that like we, we just aren't anywhere near solving do you feel like you're starting to see motion there I think so that like, I'm pretty cynical um, and like particularly writing about something like the family court which is a you know it's a, it's a lot <laughs> um, and law is a you know it's a long thing and it takes a long time to change but I think in other places you are seeing differences and you see it in the way that men react like oh we can't say anything anymore it's like no you can't you cannot sorry about it you can't comment on my face or my hair or my boobs and I quite like it and I don't really care if you don't like it so even those little things are like that's good like that is society shifting and I think um, the fact we have the abuse inquiry is a good thing and I mean I hope the one thing that comes out of that is like the cover-up by the state agencies like that that's the bigger problem you know that abuse happens and then other people work like you can read Aaron Smale's stories about it you know there were there were structures set up to just again like limit liability to the state and it's not like we're talking about I don't know you know something small it's like abused children and they had all the mechanisms swinging behind to do that and I think that's where like that's where the light needs to shine really we know that humans are capable of abusing other people like we don't really need to go into the gratuitous detail of that but the way the state reacts is like what I would find really interesting yeah it's almost like on a enormous scale the the version of the the HR department that it just exists to, to propagate the mothership we've just got to take a very quick break right now and then I'll return for a, a little longer with uh, Kirsty Johnston before we uh, move on I, and and talk about your your new newish workplace and stuff, I just want to talk a, a, about a couple more um, of your sort of biggest stories and and probably potentially most impactful. And that is um, Ashley Peacock and seclusion, which felt like it was something that no one knew was happening, and you put it on the front page of the paper and made it so that no one anywhere near it could look away yeah god I had balls eh like that was a lot I don't know where I got the confidence to just be like so anyway let's go and hide in a bush and like video this disabled guy um like with his carers and you know then just like take that like paparazzi video of this guy put it on the front page of the paper and just not stop banging on about it like even now I think that wasn't that it was maybe five years ago but I'm like wow I really really went at that but it was uh, yeah again you could just sort of feel the the kind of moral force of just having seen this thing and thinking this just can't be not in this country not without someone who is ultimately responsible having to look it in the eye and say either I'll change that or I'm fine with that yeah, well, I think because I remember they had like Ashley's kind of advocacy team had been trying to get me to write about him for ages. And I was like, well, what's different? Like I've read there had been some other stories in the Dominion Post about him being locked up. I think it was the front page. But I think what was different was that they had the report that said like these three experts had said it is wrong and it is making him worse. Like the way they're treating him is making him worse. And I think it was something about a breach of his human rights. And I was like, it's all there. 
Like, it's all there. It wasn't really that risky, to be honest, because it was in black and white that he was being, like, one step down from tortured, whatever that is, you know? Like, they didn't go quite as far as saying in the Ombudsman report that he was tortured, but they may as well. Um, So really, like, it was quite... Like, I think if you take a human rights framework, it makes it easier because you do literally have moral authority. (laughs) So if you bang on about stuff like obviously you go through these dark periods where you're like oh god have I been enough more than I can chew and what am I doing and do I write another story about this but if you have like that kind of paperwork I guess it makes it easier and what happened out the back of that like did, did, did things change and, and is that you must find that kind of satisfying when when there is actual movement yeah so Ashley he was you know incarcerated in a um psychiatric facility in a really small room and he shouldn't have been there and they eventually let him go and move to his own house where he has like chickens and dogs and you know that's very nice I mean he's still very unwell because he was unwell to start with but also because of that you know incarceration but yeah I don't know more broadly if anything's changed to be honest like there were other Ashleys at the time I really wanted to write about them. There's not some of them don't have families. Like he had a very vocal and very educated family, which is part of the reason his story was easy to tell. Um, yeah, I don't really know how much has changed on a broad scale, you know, and which is really hard and kind of doesn't bear thinking about. You don't want to be solving these things one by one. That's the whole structural change thing you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and in Ashley's case, I don't really know if we got that structural case, but to be fair, in his case, I'm just happy that it was good for him, you know? Is there a story of yours that has had that kind of bigger structural legal change? Oh, yeah, well, I got schools to stop locking disabled children in cupboards, so that was quite good, which was legal, apparently, until um, Hekia Parata outlawed it after one of my stories it's special education for you eh? they're like oh we've got these rooms where we're just gonna seclude children who have you know autism and that's fine and we yeah i exposed that and we got a law change there which is good that's good do you feel like that happens often enough because it can sometimes feel like there's a, a you know just in the same way that the state kind of for many years and I'm sure still does kind of rear up to to cover up and protect liability um, of of those who are abused in its care that can also feel like there's a kind of comms industrial complex that seeks to sort of delay and obfuscate and and just generally kind of shrink something to the point where it can be answered with a concerned look at a press conference and uh, we'll look into that rather than actually just very quickly stopping the thing. Yeah, and I think it depends the size of the thing you take on too, right? So children being secluded at school, easy fix. Just don't do that. They just change the law. The other one that I got was I got a repeal of um, Part 4A of the Health and Disability Act, which was about family carers. So that was a law, like long history, but it basically banned family members of the disabled for being paid for care for them and we got that repealed because it was discriminatory um so that's really good it's like on a broader scale but again it's like what it's like a very small thing whereas the reporting that I'm doing now I would say is kind of trying to like back up the truck of patriarchy which is you know (laughs) 
it's a bit bigger and you know like it's particularly things like legal systems where everyone who works in that system is in, invested in believing that it is a good and good system that works and if you say hey I don't think it works like that it it's a lot for people to try and get their heads around they get really defensive yeah, because they're invested, you know, and because it's hard. It's a hard thing to think about. Especially so guess, not if you're, like, really deep into your career and there's someone who's basically saying it's kind of been not a scam, yeah. but it's been a little bit scammy. This isn't great. Have you guys thought about, like, maybe just getting rid of it? Like, someone said the other day to me, I can't remember who it was, I was whinging about the court system again. They're like, well, what do you want to do, Kirst? You just get rid of the Westminster system? And I was like, yep, yeah, maybe. <laughs> like small goals I think my boss is probably just like Christ can you just pick a small piece of legislation and get that change rather than trying to you know like upend the entire structure the world's built on I mean that's going to take some time so I should probably let you go I wanted to ask one more question though um, which was kind of led us back to this in a way in that if you're trying to create journalism that tells us and individual stories that um, speak to much wider issues and have huge impacts and ultimately change the realities that produce those situations, you're kind of going to want as many people as possible to read it. Up until a year or so ago, you were um, at the Herald and behind the paywall, which is a great thing for the funding of the media, but it does necessarily shrink the audience for those stories and potentially with it the impact of them. You've since moved to stuff which is uh, still free to all. Do you want to talk a bit about your sense of how your work was impacted by the arrival of the paywall and then with it moving um, out from under that again, what what your sense is of whether that does have an influence on, on how hard it hits? Yeah, um, so when the paywall first came in, I was like really supportive of it, obviously, because, you know, having free media has been problematic. Um, and then I kind of quickly realised that I didn't really have a place in an organisation that had a paywall, by which I mean... So it changed the measures of success, right? So pre-paywall, measure of success for your story was like either, okay, you got a law change, which is like good, like that's a societal thing. But the main measure was obviously clicks, right? So how many eyeballs are in your story or like engagement time, which is how long people read it for. And those are valuable to advertisers because, you know, eyeballs. Anyway, so after the paywall came in, the measures of success changed and that if your story was paywalled, like, it was good if it got subscribers. And so like your average good story probably was getting like five to ten. Like if you got five, you're like, oh my God, I got five that's, subscribers. That's, kind of, that's a huge number. Still. Yeah, you're excited. Um, and then because it kind of came in and then COVID happened and then I remember writing a story about like Marist, which had a, um, you know, an outbreak, a cluster. And that got like a hundred subscribers. Right, and then other people were writing stories all around me, and you could see which ones were getting subscribers. And they were like Audrey Young's political work, um, her columns, because she's authoritative, right? So people wanted to know what she said, mm-hmm. things like that. And then just stuff about rich people was like another one. And so Marist, right? It's a rich private school, and so the parents of the children that go there can afford to subscribe. So that started happening, and I was like, these aren't the stories that I write, okay? So you either had that, or you were writing what I would call clickbait, you know, like stories that are obviously going to get a lot of clicks or stuff that's happening on that day, like, you know, um, something blowing up somewhere, and that was obviously going to be free. And so my stories, like, really fell in 
the gap between that. Did you find that there was pressure from like yeah. from senior editorial leaders about where to put your time time and energy out the back of that that shift into conversions? Yeah, there was talk about it a lot. They kind of had this thing where they were like, we either do stories that get lots of clicks or we do stories that get lots of subscribers and nothing in between. And so I fell in the in-between. I remember raising it and saying, hey, this is a problem because my stories are like, the people who read them, the subscribers in particular who read them, would read the whole thing, right? And they liked them and they get a lot of Twitter profile. But they weren't getting like the... You know, they weren't leading the site. It's a weird, you know, like you can kind of almost imagine it. Like, would you like to pay $250 a year to read this super harrowing thing? <laughs> I mean, yeah. humans should behave like that, but they're probably never going to. No, and, you know, stories about poor people don't generate subscriptions. You know, stories about the marginalised and all that don't generate subscriptions. Stories about, like, gender inequality for women in the workplace don't generate subscriptions. They generate a lot of angry emails from men, but that doesn't translate into money. Can, can you monetize angry emails yeah, from can men? I, how to monetize incels? Um, yeah, so I fell in the cracks, and it was just really, it was really hard, and I didn't feel like, I just, it just didn't feel sustainable. How's it feel being over at Stuff, which, you know, has, I think, under Sinead's management, particularly her ownership, has feels like it's animated by some quite different, um, like it just feels like it's moved. Yeah. Um, it was so funny when I first got there. Like, I was quite burnt out. There was that other reason for a change. Like, I was just like at the end of a road where I just needed, I really should have taken a lot more time off. Um but because I had the concussion, I eventually ended up getting some of that. But yeah, when I first got to Sorry stuff, that it takes yeah. a concussion. Yeah. Go journalism. <laughs> Yay. Um, but yeah, when I got to stuff, I remember like pitching my stories and still pitching them in a very herald way, which is like to try and like trick an editor into running your story by pitching it in a way that sounds like less kind of feminist or less, you know, like social justice warrior than it was. And then I eventually realized they didn't. They were like, it's fine, you know, just write the story. You don't have to, like, you know, try and make it less of what it is. Um, so that was good. And, yeah, I think stuff's going for that trust model and that's kind of a more natural fit for me at this point. Um, and it's not to say that the Herald doing the payroll is good or bad or make makes better or worse journalism. It just didn't make a place for what I wanted to do. So you're up here for the Voyager Awards. Yes. How many are up for? <laughs> one, just, Duncan. Just one? Just one. Unbelievable. Sort it out, Voyager's judges. No, look, it's fine. I'm surprised that I'm even up for one after last oh, year. <laughs> <laughs> and I, again, thanks to my occupational therapist, Sonia, um, I don't, like, it's not one of my measures of success that I wrote in my wee notebook anymore. Um, so I'm not worried about it, but I am excited to see everyone. Um, cool. Well, good luck to you, Kirsty, and thank you so much for, for coming on The Fold. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> fun and stressful. Kia ora e tewi. Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.